0: Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for tuning in to AOA here on this Wednesday, June 8th. Before we get into the show itself, I want to apologize, folks, to those of you who were tuned in to the show yesterday during that 9 to 10 hour, and you didn't hear me. Uh, We had some struggles with a receiver. It's incredible. We're sending this system up into space it gets caught when the satellite sent back down to earth and yesterday we just had a little bit of an issue so thanks for for bearing with us folks we believe we've got everything fixed for today so we should be ready to rock and roll and we've got a lot to talk about today rural internet has been terrible for a long time. I'm sure a lot of you out there listening have dealt with the struggles of rural internet. We're going to talk with Jeff Johnston in segment two about how that could be changing. The economics and the technology have reached a point we could see that open up in the coming years. And in segment three, Arlen Suderman, Chief Commodities Economist with Stonex, will be joining us here on the show. Markets are rallying today, and Arlen will give us his take. And for segment four, we're going to visit with Dr. Steve Lerner. He's a senior scientific and business advisor currently with Christian Hansen, and he's been working on the space of probiotics and livestock diets as we're all looking for ways to stretch that feed ration in this summer probiotics might be bringing some things to the table before we talk about all of that however food prices around the world are continuing to drive headlines and importantly they're continuing to drive government actions we've seen a few times now countries have dropped tariffs on food moving into into their country in a bid to lower the price for their consumers we saw mexico do that with pork here a few weeks ago and this past week it was announced that another major u.s pork customer south korea has made a similar move joining us today to discuss it is jessica spritzer she's the director of trade analysis with the u.s Media export federation and jessica thanks for joining us today
1: yeah thanks for having me good to be with you
0: let's talk about the situation right now in south korea jessica this last week they announced a a basically a duty-free import of pork from around the world is am i understanding it correctly
1: yes that's correct so we just had the announcement um last week that the government was going to introduce Probably a 50,000 metric ton duty-free TRQ is what the initial reports are saying. So we don't have the final details of this yet. We're now expecting to get the announcement from the government the week of June 20. So they're still working through the details, but from initial reports, we're expecting it to be roughly around 50,000 metric tons of duty-free quota.
0: Jessica, for those of us who aren't plugged into the meat export game, 50,000 metric tons sounds like a lot. How much is it in comparison to the rest of the pork that South Korea imports?
1: That is fairly significant. So for reference, last year, their total imports were around 450,000 metric tons. And uh, back in the record in uh, 2018, when they had record imports, that was closer to 600,000 metric tons.
0: Okay, so it is a, it's a sizable figure for South Korea's imports, and Jessica, will the U.S. pork producer benefit from this wave of tariffs?
1: So, U.S. pork uh, already is at zero duty to South Korea for all items through our trade agreement with South Korea, and some of the other main competitors already have zero duty in South Korea as well. So the EU, which is the other main supplier along with the U.S., and then also Chile already has total duty-free access for pork to South Korea. So the benefit for this um, will likely impact more on some of our competitors, so Canada, Mexico, and Brazil. Canada also has a free trade agreement with South Korea, uh, but their duties do not fully phase to zero until um, a couple years from now, so not until 2027. So right now um, they have uh, Lower duties than uh, if they didn't have the free trade agreement, but they're still paying a higher rate than the U.S. So they are paying 8.6% on chilled pork currently. And then Mexico and Brazil are still subject to the full duties since they don't have a trade agreement. So that would be uh, 25% for frozen pork and 22.5% for chilled pork. So this could open up some opportunity for those suppliers.
0: Jessica, the governments, Mexico, previously, now South Korea, have said they're making this move to help bring pork prices, or food prices, I suppose, in-country down. Do you anticipate this move doing much to actually relieve some pressure there on South Korean pork consumers?
1: Yeah, so in South Korea, you know, they're responding to these this big increase that they've seen in domestic pork prices. And a lot of that was driven by really strong demand, or strong demand and consumption of pork during the pandemic, especially with pork being popular for cooking at home in Korea, and then also pork performing really well at retail. So they've seen strong demand even with increasing production domestically. So they do have high domestic prices. So the move was hoping to temper that a little bit on the import side, but as we know, um, globally prices are high as well. So. This, this could open up, I think, some more opportunities to gain some market share for some of these smaller suppliers, uh, but the U.S. still um, continues to have South Korea as a major market, so I don't think that will really change those dynamics overall
0: all right it's a reminder to keep american pork front and center now that south korean buyers have some more options on their tables jessica as we think about these countries dropping these import tariffs of course the united states does face import tariffs in other countries around the world is there the potential that this higher food price globally could eliminate some of those tariffs have we heard any places where u.s meat could get an advantage from tariffs dropping yeah so so far um
1: this is mostly benefited some of our competitors but you know the u.s has fantastic access uh, to many markets with duty-free um, access for us for through a lot of our trade agreements so especially in the western hemisphere where we already have zero duties through usmca for canada and mexico and then also for central america the dominican republic and south america as well but a few of the countries so this is a little more in response to the animal disease situation, and, uh, but in Vietnam and the Philippines were two of the countries where the U.S. still paid the highest duties on pork, and we've actually seen that situation change, again, with some recent announcements. So, uh, in Vietnam, a lot of our competitors do have trade agreements, so through CPTPP or the EU has an FTA, Russia has an agreement with Vietnam. But um, the U.S. was paying 15% duties on frozen pork, and we have the, recently had the announcement that uh, Vietnam would be lowering their duty again, like they did back in 2020 uh, with the outbreaks of ASF, back to 10%. So that will benefit the U.S. since we were already, you know, competing at a disadvantage there. So that 10% duty will bring us closer to our competitors, and that will be from July 1 onward. And uh, we want to, you know partners at NTPC for focusing on that as well. But um, the Philippines is another one, too, where we've had a recent announcement and they have, again, uh, reinstated these lower duties. So Philippines had one of the highest duties on port globally, 40% for this out-of-quota duty that most suppliers are paying, and that will now be 25% again through the end of the year.
0: Wow. Saving 15% on U.S. pork in Vietnam and 20 percent on U.S. pork in the Philippines. Jessica, that sounds like a win. Thank you so much for coming on the show today and talking about these opportunities in this changing global world. Really appreciate it.
1: Yes, great. Thank you so much.
0: Folks, that was Jessica Spreitzer. She's the Director of Trade Analysis at the U.S. Meat Export Federation. Stick with us when we return. Jeff Johnston, Communications Economist at CoBank, is going to talk to us about how changing rural Internet might be in the card. Stick with us here on AOA. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, agriculture of America don't go away more AOA coming right up every Tuesday we're sitting around the table sponsored by CHS where we'll be talking with folks from throughout the cooperative system join us as we discover what makes cooperatives unique when there are more options to do business with than ever before We'll learn how farmers and ranchers like you benefit from a system where decisions are made by the members that own it. Tune in every Tuesday for Around the Table or visit cooperativeownership.com to learn more.
2: Corn is native to the American continents and was unknown to the rest of humanity until Columbus arrived in the New World in the 15th century. It took less than 100 years after Columbus's discovery for corn to be introduced to farmers in Asia, Africa, Europe, and the Pacific Islands. After wheat and rice, corn is the third most cultivated crop in the world. The four nations that purchase the most corn from the United States are Mexico and Colombia, who use it as a food ingredient, and Japan and South Korea, who buy it mainly for animal feed. When it comes to protecting your investment in fuel and diesel-powered equipment, Diesel X Gold
3: from FS clearly beats other diesel fuels. New detergents disperse contaminants to prevent sludge that plugs filters and causes unexpected downtime. And now, better moisture handling chemistry helps ensure your fuel stays dry, reducing microbial growth and fuel line freeze-ups. So when you're deciding what fuel to use, choose Diesel X Gold, absolutely the best fuel to power and protect your diesel equipment. Contact your local FS Energy specialist today or visit GoFurtherWithFS.com.
4: A message brought to you by Heart Valve Voice US. For more information about the symptoms and treatment for valve disease, go to heartvalvevoice-us.org.
0: You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. This is Mike Pearson, and you can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Well, folks, welcome back to AOA here today. One of the challenges we've seen in rural America over the past 20 years has been the speed of rural broadband. It just hasn't been there, and rural America has been left in the dust. The major telecom carriers have said they just can't make it work. There's too few people, the geography's too big, and the cost would be too high to get widespread broadband access. My goodness, that was a a word soup there. We'll get that going. But now it seems as though the technology is changing, and the laws are changing in a way that might allow some new competitors to come onto the scene and provide that high-speed rural internet that so many of us need for our businesses and our families. Joining me today to talk about it is Jeff Johnston. He's a communications economist at CoBank, and he and Ken Zuckerberg recently authored a paper describing how co-ops can lead the way on farm broadband. Jeff, thanks for joining us today.
5: Great, Mike. Thanks for having me.
0: Let's start at the beginning. Jeff, in 2018, some rules and laws changed that would allow for more uh, disparate groups to provide internet service. Can you talk about what happened in 2018?
5: Absolutely. So the FCC changed the way they sold and made spectrum available. That for a certain block of spectrum that really has enabled a wide range of organizations so call it farmer cooperatives, farmer ranchers themselves, manufacturers, school districts, homeowners associations, etc. It enabled a wide range of these organizations to build and own their own private wireless network. And the important thing here, Mike, is that it's a carrier grade private wireless network, and that means that all of those organizations that I just mentioned, and of course many others, can build networks that use essentially the same equipment and work the same way as the wireless networks that are offered by AT&T, Verizon, and T-Mobile. And you know, without getting into too much of the, of the weeds, so to speak, basically, well, historically, when the FCC made Spectrum available, they sold it in these really big chunks, really big blocks. And unless you had billions of dollars to bid on that spectrum, which essentially limited it to the large national operators, you, know, you weren't able to participate in these FCC auctions, therefore you were not able to build your own private wireless network. Well, several years ago, the CBRS auction, which is the chunk of spectrum that they changed the rules on, um, came along, and the FCC sold little tiny slivers of spectrum at costs that were much more manageable for the aforementioned organizations and therefore enabled them to build their own networks. And then they also made another big chunk of spectrum available to, to everybody on a, on a licensed basis, kind of similar to what we use with Wi-Fi where anybody can use that, that spectrum and build their own network. So they really kind of leveled the playing field to enable uh, and really to kind of democratize building and owning your own wireless network.
0: All right, so that's the legal stuff we got out of the way. Now we can do this, Jeff, but I imagine the technology took some time to improve. Are we to a place now that elevators, co ops, farmers can buy this stuff and build these networks in an affordable fashion?
5: I I really think we are, Mike. And, you know, uh, even though it was several years ago when these policy changes were put in place, unfortunately, the pandemic kind of slowed things down a little bit in terms of deploying these networks. And then I think there's also been an issue, although I feel like we're getting kind of past that, and just in terms of awareness on the parts of elevators and farmers and ranchers to be able to have this opportunity. So that's sort of taken some time to, to, uh, to mature. And now the ecosystem, and when I say ecosystem, I'm talking about equipment manufacturers, uh, system integrators, consultants, etc. That whole market is really starting to mature now. So we're now at a point where even if an elevator doesn't have a lot of experience in doing something like this, and presumably most don't, um, there are a lot of people out there, whether it be the system integrators or even your local uh, telephone company that may be able to help you in building these networks. So I do believe that um, we're sort of at a tipping point here where I do believe we're going to start to see a lot of these networks being built
0: so jeff with that being the case your report looked specifically at co-ops and what was it about that model that makes this way of providing broadband attractive
5: well you know when we thought about this mike for the uh for the agricultural community we thought you know scale is important right so certainly uh, a farmer rancher on a one-off basis could could do this that's you know it they, they can do it they can work with the ecosystem and do it but you know, look, we're in a, as we all know, we're in a pretty serious um, supply chain crunch right now across all sectors of the economy. Communications, equipment, and labor is not immune to that. So for one reason, it's important to have scale. Um, and we think that if all of this is done under the co-op or the elevator umbrella, you get that scale. And then secondly, I think there's some interesting business models out there for the for the co-ops to be able to generate um, new sources of revenue uh, in the face of, of rising costs and so forth um, and again lots of different ways to kind of skin the cat here in terms of how you deploy these networks but certainly for the for the elevators there's an opportunity to be able to offer this service to their members and have a new source of revenue <laughs>
0: Jeff, we saw this past year during the the big conversation over infrastructure, rural broadband was really center stage. I mean, it was certainly a, a very hot topic of conversation. There was a lot of funding that was funneled towards rural broadband. Would programs like this, elevators establishing their own wire, uh, networks, would that qualify for some of this federal funding?
5: That's a great point, Mike. I'm glad you brought that up because I do believe absolutely that the elevators uh, in building these networks would be able to qualify for some of that funding. So when we think about government funding, there's really three main buckets that I think are applicable to this conversation. The first one would be the $42.5 billion, unprecedented amount of money, $42.5 billion that the federal government has made available to rural broadband as a part of the recent Infrastructure Act that passed. So that's being doled out at the state level, but I do believe that money's up for grabs as it relates to what we're talking about here. So that's number one. Number two, there's a program from the FCC called the Rural Digital Opportunity Fund, and there is $20 billion in total in that particular program. And again, that's designed to provide broadband where either don't have it at all or it's not sufficient. So that now we're at $62 billion, and then there's another $1 billion as a part of this FCC program called the 5G Fund, and that $1 billion is specifically for precision agriculture applications. So I do believe that there is money out there that can be put towards these builds that can help offset you know, the, the capital cost to, to build these networks.
0: Fascinating, fascinating. All of these factors are kind of converging right now here in 2022. But Jeff, it's always tough to be the first mover in your work at CoBank working with your clients. Have you encountered elevators or groups building this out already?
5: Well, I think uh, uh, on a on a small scale, Mike. Um, I think, and again, it gets back to the comment I made earlier on just overall awareness, right? Uh, this is a new a new concept for a lot of elevators, and I think just kind of getting your head around, hey, I can actually build my own wireless network. Wait a minute, what, what, what's all that about? So, so there's some time for folks to get up to speed, but there has been a small number of of, of programs that have been uh, deployed and. And it's great because these, these elevators and their members can really start to take advantage of all of the efficiencies that precision agriculture applications deliver. So kind of when you look at it from a cost perspective, you know, I think there's a strong argument to be made that this is a good thing for elevators to be looking at.
0: Absolutely, I would certainly think it would be. And Jeff, for people who maybe listeners are on the board of their local elevator, we've got a lot of folks who are active in that community. If this is something they want to look at, where can they go to get some more information?
5: So I would say that um, I would reach out to I would reach out to uh, your your local uh, your local wireless company. Uh, for one, I would reach out to maybe your local. Broadband provider and see if it's something that they would be interesting interested in partnering with you, because certainly they have the capabilities to do that, and I think there's a business model for them to be able to look at it. So I would say as a starting point, you know maybe go there and then and then uh, if if that doesn't bear any fruit, then I would start to look for um, you know there's a number of smaller organizations out there that um, that offer kind of project management system integrator support. Um, so I would, you know, go on the web and search around for there and start talking to some of those companies. Or you could go straight to the manufacturers themselves. I mean, you could pick up the phone and call Nokia, you, you know, the, one of the largest manufacturers of telecom equipment in the world, or Ericsson, and start with them because they're, you know, they're knee-deep in this as well. And they can certainly provide some guidance as to where uh, these elevators should be, should be uh, pointing their, you know, efforts towards
0: Fantastic. And folks, if you're curious about learning more about this issue, check out Jeff's paper, How Co-Ops Can Lead the Way for DIY on-farm Broadband. That's the Co-Bank Knowledge Exchange. Jeff Johnston, thanks for joining us today. Thanks so much, Mike. And folks, stick with us. Arlen Suderman of Stonex will join us when we return. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture
6: of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. Hi, I'm Secretary Tom Vilsack. In my 40-plus years of experience in the ag industry, I have seen firsthand the tremendous value and influence of the Census of Agriculture. A complete count of our farms, ranches, and the people who operate them that tells the story of U.S. agriculture. It highlights trends, needs, and the great impact agriculture has on every American as well as folks around the world. Ag census data also informs federal, state, and local decisions that will affect you and your operations for years to come. If you're an ag producer, no matter the size of your operation, urban or rural, and you did not receive the 2017 Census of Agriculture and did not receive other USDA surveys, you still have time to sign up to receive the 2022 Ag Census this fall. Every voice matters. To sign up or learn more, visit nas.usda.gov backslash agcensus. Thank you.
7: You're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Jesse Allen reporting. Well, as we take a look at the market trade so far on this Wednesday, we see mostly higher action in the grains led by this soy complex with beans, higher with good strength in bean meal and bead oil. A little bit of bull spreading has been seen overnight and still here this morning between beans and corn. Old crop corn is higher, while uh, new crop corn is only up uh, about 4 to 5 cents. Wheat futures have backed off overnight highs, but still holding green uh, numbers on the screen here as we work through our mid-morning. While we see cattle and hogs mostly higher, a little more weakness in this hog market. Brazilian crop agency CONAB this morning raised its estimate for soybean production for the 21-22 growing season as harvesting of the oil seeds was virtually finished. Brazilian farmers produced 124.3 million metric tons of soybeans this season, the agency said. Wednesday in May, the agency forecast a crop of 123.8 million tons, so a slight uptick in production. Doesn't seem to be affecting the soybean market here, though, as we work through our morning. The trade gearing up for what we're going to see on Friday's. WASDI report also looking at weather maps and also watching what's going on between Turkey and Russia as they are having talks on Wednesday looking at the possibility of opening up a humanitarian grain corridor to get grains shipped out of Ukraine. Numbers in the trade right now: July corn currently up eleven and a half, seven sixty-eight and a half. December up four and three quarters, seven eighteen to three quarters. July beans up twenty-five and a quarter, seventeen fifty-three and a half. November up 18, 15.67 to three quarters. Bean meal, bean oil showing good strength. July Chicago wheat up three, ten seventy-four three quarters. July Kansas City wheat up four, eleven fifty-three and a quarter. July spring wheat up three at twelve thirty and a quarter june live cattle up 122 134.95 june hogs unchanged 108.42 crude oil up 34 cents 119.75 i'm jesse allen reporting
2: 54 so basically it's too late to start saving for retirement right
8: not right starting to save even in your 50s can really make a difference
2: well right now saving seems hard to wrap my head around Plus, with the way this year's been going... (laughs) Hey,
8: listen, it's okay. You still got this. Just go to aceyourretirement.org. It's an online tool from AARP that can help you get your retirement savings on track no matter your age. It's free and only takes about three
2: minutes. I like three minutes.
8: Yeah. At aceyourretirement.org, you'll chat with Avo, the friendly digital retirement coach. Just answer a few questions and you'll get a personalized plan and tips to help boost your retirement savings. Tips that are easy to understand and tailored to your lifestyle.
2: I like that too.
8: Plus, it's sponsored by AARP, so you know they got your back. Just head to aceyourretirement.org and make your plan to start saving for retirement. Thanks. That's aceyourretirement.org. A message from AARP and the Ad Council.
0: This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. The show moves on and the markets are moving higher. Well, the green markets anyway. We've got a rally happening in corn, beans, and wheat. According to my screen right now, oats and rice are kind of the only red in the greens. Well, front month canola as well. We're going to talk to Arlen about what is happening. Excuse me. Arlen Suderman is up next, chief commodities economist with StoneX. And Arlen, I want to talk to you about what is happening in this soybean market. We're higher. Old crop up 22. November up 16.5 at the moment. What is driving the soybean bus today? Yeah,
3: there's a couple of factors here that are at play. First of all, we have old crop supplies tightening up in a sense that USDA may raise its export target once again on Friday with its monthly crop report, further tightening its ending stocks and um, so that's a concern. It's becoming more and more difficult to originate soybeans in the country right now to meet both crush demand and export demand, so that's a supportive factor. Then we start to look at the growing season ahead. Soybeans are the crop that have the best opportunity to grow themselves out of a tight situation if we have a normal growing season corn would still be tight if we had a normal growing season based on current demand projections. So how will the growing season play out? One of the things that we've been watching for is some forecast models like the European model as well as even the U.S. Climate Prediction Center have been calling for a hot dry summer to develop by July and August. For that to happen, We need to see a La Nina condition, which we have, cool waters off the west coast, which we have, a high pressure, a, a triple high pressure pattern established with a high pressure over the central Pacific, one over the central Atlantic, one in the middle right over the heart of the Midwest set up east of the Rocky Mountains. We have not had that, nor have we had any indication that that was gonna happen until this past weekend. The atmospheric signals started turning this weekend setting up that type of a pattern. It's gonna take some time to happen, but by 10 days from now, that is expected to happen. That happening in June alone is not a problem. If that sets up and has enough strength to remain sustainable into mid-July and later, that becomes a big problem and we don't know whether that'll be the case yet, but when supplies are as tight as they are for corn and soybeans, um, that really matters, and so the market is rapidly adding risk premium right now, and add to that the fact that we may lose acres, particularly in the Northern Plains, Northwestern, Midwest, because of how persistently wet it's been and how difficult it's been to get acres planted further tightening up the balance sheet. So the market's finally starting to put that risk factor into its Prices now.
0: Arlen, you touched on the incredible demand we've seen for the domestic soy crush. And of course, as we head into summer, we're heading into that period where plants go down. we we'll wait for the next fall's availability. Do you think there could be some strength ahead in the meal market as those plants slow down from their crazy crush pace?
3: Well, that's a great question and and there certainly could be. I think that uh, uh, as we go longer term, we're going to see enough demand from the biodiesel, the, the new renewable diesel, I should say, that we're going to increase this crush capacity. We're going to increase the supply of meal and see cheaper meal supplies available. We're not there yet, and so in the near term, we face the possibility that we could see tighter meal supplies this summer. And so it's something livestock producers certainly need to be watching that risk exposure. They're dealing with high enough prices the way it is with corn and meal, and so this may be their opportunity until we get to that point where we've escalated crush enough to really increase those meal supplies over the next year. And I do think that that's going to happen as we crush more and more for oil over the next year. In fact, we're looking for a shortage of oil in order to meet the capacity we're building for renewable diesel for 23, 24, and 25 years. And so that means as we crush to try to meet that oil demand, a larger supplies of meal.
0: And Arlen, while we're talking products, we've got bean oil right now, July at 82, almost 83 bucks. Does that is that high enough to encourage these plants to continue crushing for oil regardless of what's happening on the meal side?
3: Yeah, at this point it is. So the problem is that the plants are having trouble originating grain. It varies from what part of the Midwest you're in and from region to region. Uh, but certainly we've been seeing that tightening up a basis as processors have been trying to get the needs they have. And then you add on top of this the export demand. is U.S. soybeans are now cheaper than Brazilian beans. We know that China still has needs. About 40% of its July needs are still not filled. About 60% of its August needs are still not filled, and it has very little coverage for September yet, Uh, and most of that's going to have to come from our old crop supplies, so it looks like we may be looking at the fourth quarter of this marketing year, quite a battle between the processor and the exporter.
0: Arlen, let's look to the end of this week. USDA will be releasing their World Agricultural Supply and Demand Estimates report. The WASDE report will come out on Friday. You talked about expecting to see a little bit higher on bean exports. What other bean market issues are you going to be watching out for?
3: It would be watching to see if USDA makes any more adjustments to the Argentine and Brazilian uh, crop production estimates. We may see a little bit of a tweak lower for for Argentina. I think they're pretty close, maybe a little bit smaller in Brazil, but the South American crop is largely known. So this should be a relatively tame crop report as far as significant changes on that front, with most of the focus kind of on what happens with U.S. wheat production as a small crop gets smaller. And of course, USDA will not uh, make any estimates on the spring wheat crop. They're still going to assume a normal spring crop for this report. Uh, So it comes down to the winter wheat crop and the harvest that's started now in the southern part of that belt. Corn and soybeans, no major changes are expected right now.
0: All right, nothing major. And folks, we will be talking to Arlen on Monday's show to break down that report after it comes out. Arlen, I want to turn our focus over to, well, one of the other most important costs that farmers are dealing with every day. And of course, that's energy. Arlen, we've got crude oil, West Texas Intermediate July contract trading up around 120. Where do you see crude oil headed over the summer and what should farmers be thinking about?
3: Well, unfortunately, I see upside risk for crude oil um, because basically we have China reopening once again, which means bringing big demand back to the market for supplies. We have OPEC Plus struggling to sustain and to hit. They keep raising their um, their quotas for production, but they 're having trouble hitting those quotas. Saudi Arabia is about the only country that has significant ability to, to increase output capacity, and even that is limited and Here in the United States, we have a lot of restrictions and regulations that are that are uh, that are limiting the amount of investment being put into new wells to expand capacity. So demand is going up, supply is remaining rather constrained. Um, and so that creates some real problems and that has implications for the fertilizer industry as well. When you have a world that is kind of anti-fossil fuels and discouraging investment in, in fossil fuels, that also reduces natural gas production, which is the primary feedstock for fertilizer. And even if we have enough natural gas, it's going to be at a higher price. So even though we've seen fertilizer prices come down here this summer during that seasonal dip in demand, we have some real opportunities and the possibility that we could see higher prices next year, depending on how this plays out, how things play out with Russia, et cetera. And one of the things to watch is as Western nations put more sanctions on Russian energy, If energy backs up enough in Russia that it has to start shutting down wells in Siberia, those wells can take years to restart. We've certainly seen that in history when they've had to shut down wells, it can take a decade or more to restart it, leaving the world in tight supplies. So that's a longer-term concern for those fuel prices as well. It's something we're certainly going to need to manage from a risk management standpoint, both fuel and fertilizer costs going forward on the farm.
0: Arlen, as these fuel prices stay elevated, and I believe we hit another nationwide average fuel price today for unleaded gasoline, do you expect the ethanol demand to stay strong as consumers look to save money at the pump?
3: It seems to be uh, setting up as kind of two different markets. Certainly ethanol is, is priced to much cheaper, over a dollar cheaper than what is gasoline, a dollar a quarter or more. Um, and so that provides some incentive for blending, increasing blending. But that incentive seems to be higher, being taken more advantage of overseas. So what we're seeing is an increase in export for ethanol. And so if you look at uh, the EPA's latest uh, guidelines that they just released, um, and you look at uh, what's Happening with exports, that would leave us short of enough ethanol supply to fill that demand. Um, so it certainly looks like uh, things might be positive for ethanol producers as we go forward if we can sustain this environment and not see the EPA um, backwardly adjust things down once again as they've been doing in recent years.
0: And Arlen, with corn at 7750 are these ethanol producers still making money?
3: They're making enough money on the margins in order to keep producing. And uh, certainly with the export volume going up, that certainly helps sustain that. Obviously, it's a relationship between the price of corn and the price of ethanol, and that's a give-and-take kind of relationship that can change in a hurry. Certainly, if the weather would turn adverse in the Midwest, as I described earlier in the session, that would create some upside price risk for corn that might create challenges for ethanol. But right now, there's some incentive there to produce.
0: All right. Yes, we are going to have all have our eyes on the sky this summer, watching for that heat ridge to set up a little bit later on. Boy, growers, keep your eyes on that issue. Arlen Suderman, Chief Commodities Economist with StoneX. Always appreciate your insights. Arlen, thanks for joining us today. Thank you. And folks, stick with us. We're going to talk with Dr. Steve Lerner of Christian Hansen when we return about stretching this high-priced feed by using probiotics. Stay with us for more on AOA. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA agriculture of america don't go away more AOA coming right up
6: you are not your diagnosis
9: a medical chart is not your identity
8: and vision loss does not define you your drive shows who you are and you are not alone because we are driven too to be a beacon of strength a champion of courage
9: an advocate for hope.
8: You are not alone, because we are stronger together. We drive the research for the cures we are finding.
9: We're fighting macular degeneration,
8: retinitis pigmentosa, Usher syndrome, and the
4: entire spectrum of blinding retinal diseases.
9: We fund.
8: We fight. We, we win. win. We 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 are, are the, the foundation, foundation fighting blindness. Blind. Blind. Together, we are Fighting Blindness.
9: Join the fight at FightingBlindness.org.
6: I'll take Dig a Little, Learn a Lot for 30 bushels. Soft and crumbly. Tom. How does healthy soil feel to the touch? Correct. Dig a Little for 40 bushels. Sweet and earthy. Tom. What does healthy soil smell like? Yes, Go again. Dig a little for 50 bushels. Dark, porous, and alive. Tom. What does healthy soil look like? You win! (laughs) Understanding the basics
0: and benefits of healthy soil can make your farm a winner, too. Through lower input costs, better yields, and drought protection which can lead to a healthier bottom line for your business. Contact your local Natural Resources Conservation Service office today to find out how you can unlock the secrets in your soil. This message brought to you by USDA's Natural Resources Conservation Service and this radio station.
3: Get the coolest savings on propane during the warmest months with the Summerfill Program from FS. The FS Propane Summerfill Program offers customers the opportunity to fill their propane tanks during the summer when demand is less and prices are typically lower. From periodic propane system inspections to convenient payment options, you'll appreciate what FS dedicated propane professionals can do for you. Contact your local FS member cooperative today or visit fspropane.com.
0: This is Around the Table, where we explore the benefits of cooperative ownership. Joining me today is Jason Schwantz, Senior Vice President of Refined Fuels at CHS. We're going to talk about current fuel price and supply. Welcome, Jason. Now, tell us
9: what is causing this recent surge in fuel prices? The recent surge in fuel prices has been uh, twofold. Uh, One, coming out of kind of this COVID type demand, things really, really got hard on refiners. They cut back, things weren't getting produced because there wasn't enough demand out there. And with that, you know, along with that came some really, really low fuel inventories. Now we're kind of coming out of COVID and you see people are traveling. There's a lot of packages going out via Amazon. We're seeing a ton of fuel demand causing some of these issues. The other thing is you have the war that is going on in Ukraine is also causing some issues because we're exporting some fuel over to Europe to help them out. That is causing fuel supplies to get even lower, especially on the diesel side, we're seeing that. Jason, how is CHS positioned to support farmers with this high price
0: and this tight supply?
9: We're actually positioned really well. Our two refineries, we have a refinery in Laurel, Montana, and one in McPherson, Kansas. Uh, We're actually running those refineries as hard as we can, trying to get as much diesel fuel out of them. Jason, tell us what can farmers do
0: to minimize the effect of their current fuel prices are having on their operations?
9: anything you can do to prepare ahead uh, for these high fuel prices. I think if you work with your local cooperative, you can take advantage of some of these dips in prices, get your fuel priced out, get it delivered, and make sure that you have the supply that you need there. That's Jason
0: Schwantz, Senior Vice President of Refined Fuels at CHS. Jason, thanks for joining us.
9: Thank you for having
0: me, and everybody have a safe spring. And, folks, thank you for joining us around the table. To learn more about the benefits of cooperative ownership, visit cooperativeownership.com. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. This is Mike Pearson, and you can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. You know, we just finished talking with Arlen Suderman there. We talked about soybeans being up nearly 25 cents in that front month, corn up 12 cents in the nearby, 5 cents in the new crop, and Arlen is concerned about a hot ridge developing over the summer. What could happen to feed costs if we take corn D's contract right now at 720 and put a drought on it? Boy, that would be a struggle. One of the groups in agriculture that has had a hard time over the last two or three years making ends meet are livestock producers. All classes, all types have been struggling to make their feed stretch at these high prices. And one of the ways some producers are finding to manage this high price stress and extend their feed needs a little bit more Is through probiotics and i don't claim to be a scientific expert so i figured we should get one on the line to discuss this issue and we're going to be talking with dr steve lerner he's a senior scientific and business advisor at christian hansen dr lerner thanks for joining us today
10: good morning mike thank you for having me
0: let's talk first what are probiotics in the context of of animal
10: health Probiotics are defined by the World Health Organization as living organisms that, when consumed in adequate quantities, confer a benefit to their host. In this case, whether it's dairy cattle, beef cattle, swine, or poultry, these are the hosts that we're talking about. And the benefits that come from consuming probiotics are to support digestion and absorption of nutrients, and to support normal gut functions, leaving your animals healthy and performing as expected. So how do
0: these probiotics work? Uh, Steve, I imagine it's a different probiotic for each class of livestock?
10: Absolutely, we believe wholeheartedly that it is the specific strain of probiotic that is important to consider. When you buy a probiotic off the shelf the companies that supply them are obligated to identify for you the genus and species of the organism which are in those packages. But in fact, it is the strain, which is an individual organism and all of its direct copies, that is the most important feature to consider. Because strain, like individual people, have a unique set of gifts, and it is those gifts that have been tuned by the manufacturers of effective probiotics to work in beef cattle or dairy cattle and a different set for poultry and some for swine and even pets and people. So it is the nature of the organism that is most important. And when they work, they support, again, normal gut functions.
0: And by supporting normal gut functions, Dr. Lerner, how can they help extend our feed ration?
10: Wonderful. So when you're looking at, um, particularly when you're buying expensive additives, and they're going to get more expensive this year as we know, you're interested in getting as much of the nutrients out of the feed and into your animals as is practically possible. And what probiotics do when they're effective is to ensure proper digestion of those nutrients out of the feedstuffs that are consumed. And they also support proper absorption of those nutrients into the animal. If we're talking beef and dairy cattle, the energy will be absorbed out of the rumen, and then the rest of the supporting nutrients will be absorbed in the intestinal tract. In in monogastric animals, swine, and poultry, you're still supporting digestion and absorption. And the other benefit of effective probiotics is that it reduces the risk of problems from potentially harmful bacteria, the bad bacteria that are in the gut of our production animals. So probiotics can reduce the risk of an impact from those bad bacteria, leaving the animals to utilize the nutrients they're receiving to initially maintain themselves to defend themselves against potential stressors and to grow or to lactate if it's a dairy cow or to produce a calf if it's a breeding animal. So those are okay. the benefits of, of probiotics.
0: Mm-hmm. And now uh, you did mention one of the keys is getting it into the animal in sufficient quantities for it to, be, to, for it to do its job. Dr. Lerner, we've got 1400, 1500 pound beef animals. Can we economically feed them probiotics at the levels needed?
10: Absolutely, Mike. The, the cost of probiotics uh, in the marketplace um, is, is certainly as, as a relative of a feed additive are relatively low. Um, we're looking at roughly speaking anywhere from two-thirds of a cent to a penny and a half for most effective probiotics for beef cattle. Uh, or if we're talking about poultry and swine, it's, it's less than a couple dollars per treat a ton. Now I say that I'm not diminishing that it is a cost, but if you look at the capacity to get more nutrients out of very expensive feed, every incremental gain you make by getting these effective organisms into the gut of your animal pays back as a multiplier. And whether that's two or three or five or 10 to one depends on the cost of your feed and the benefits you derive.
0: That certainly makes sense. Steve, Christian Hansen has been in business for 147 years in this space, food culture, enzymes, probiotics. Have you been seeing demand for these products tick up here in recent years as feed costs have risen?
10: Absolutely, Mike. We, we have seen not only in our production animal side, but also in human health, the awareness of managing the microbiome of people and of animals is now very much in the the scientific eye and in the popular press. And we have learned through much investigation that effective probiotics can help increase the robustness or the buffering capacity of the microbiome that populates the the, the digestive tract of all animals. And these are the tens of trillions of normal organisms that populate every digestive tract. Uh, When you feed probiotics, you can improve the quality of that microbiome and that's really the benefit that we see. And the demand for these products has gone up every year for the last 10 years. And we, we don't see a limit in this until it's got the entire saturation of the market.
0: Thank you, Dr. Lerner. Folks, if you're curious, you can visit chr-hansen.com chr-hansen, for more information about their probiotics and join us tomorrow for more AOA. This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world.